You're listening to the podcast of Church of the Holy Cross in Popper Bluff, Missouri, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at holycrosspb.org. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lent is something of a fad season. Many of us gleefully tell each other what we are giving up for Lent, as if Lent is a sort of second chance for a New Year's resolution. And our Lenten abstinence then becomes the highlight of the season. Many years ago, I was attending a church and um, this church asked all of its members to list on the Sunday before Lent what they were planning to give up for Lent. And on the following Sunday, the first Sunday in Lent, they had a feast with all the items that we named on that list, reasoning that since Sundays are freebies, we might all like to partake of the treats that we were giving up every other day. Sometimes we do realize that Lent is not all about abstaining from chocolate or alcohol, but we turn it into a sort of self-help course. Six weeks to become the person God wants me to be. When we take it seriously, though, I think that Lent is perhaps the most dangerous time of the Christian year. During this time, the church calls us to confront the reality of sin and rebellion in our lives and to put these parts of our lives to death. Lent as a particular season of the Christian year was first formalized and codified at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, but its origins may be found in something practiced by the very earliest Christians in the first and second centuries. We read about this in the Didache, which is one of the, the outside of the, the New Testament text, one of the earliest Christian writings. In the early church, before a person was baptized, he or she was expected to undergo a period of preparation and of fasting. The time of training and preparation to be baptized could go on for years. In fact, the norm was something between three to five years. If a person professed that they wanted to join the church, uh, the church would take them in and would uh, start a course of teaching that would take up to five years before they would be baptized. It took that long before the church considered the candidate sufficiently ready to be welcomed into the fullness of the church. You remember that in those days Christianity was illegal. You wanted to make sure you didn't have any imposters or spies trying to join the church. You wanted to make sure the person was sufficiently committed. The period of fasting was much shorter, of course, because you can't really fast for years on end. That's not healthy. But because baptisms generally happened at Easter, the days leading up to Easter were set aside for the pre-baptism fast. In fact, the Didache says that in the days leading up to Easter, anyone being baptized, as well as the priest or bishop baptizing them, as well as anybody else in the church who is able, should fast to prepare for the sacrament of baptism. And baptism is, frankly, a symbolic death. When we are baptized, we put to death our old selves, and we rise with Christ to a new life. Lent is a time during which we prepare to die and we put to death our sinful selves. 
Our readings this morning force us to confront head-on the reality of sin. In the readings from Genesis and from 1 Peter, we're reminded that sin has very real consequences. Sin leads to destruction. And in the Gospel reading, we learn that Jesus resisted the temptation to sin. And his resistance reminds us very clearly and very starkly of the times that we have failed to resist and have given in to temptation. And when I say that we're confronted by the reality of sin this morning, I'm not talking about cosmic evil. I'm not talking about the sense that evil is real, that evil is destructive, that there are destructive forces out there, that evil is, lur is out there lurking and trying to cause havoc in the world. When I say that our Bible, Bible readings this morning remind us of the reality of sin, I am talking about something intensely personal. I am talking about the choices that we make every single day to set our personal will in opposition to God's will. I don't know if you've ever spent much time around a two-year-old, but for the last two weeks, I've been snowed in with a two-year-old. And that's given me a very vivid illustration of the conflict of different wills. Anytime we want Adam to do something, he wants to do the opposite. His favorite word is no. Adam, don't climb on the bookshelf. No, mine. It's reminded me that there are destructive things that happen when uh, one will is set in opposition to another will. And the catechism of our church defines sin as when we put our will in place of God's will. For me, evil is a much easier concept to deal with than sin is. I don't mind talking about the forces of nature, for example, that have caused devastating blizzards and ice storms in much of the country this week. I don't mind talking about how there's something out there that wants to destroy us. I don't mind talking about the pathological and psychological processes that have led us to become such a polarized nation that some citizens found it appropriate and even necessary to storm the United States Capitol last month. I don't mind talking about evil and destructive powers when they are distant and impersonal. But I start getting much more uncomfortable when I'm forced to think about the ways in which my personal choices have contributed to these situations. The winter storm that shut down much of the country this week and wreaked havoc on the state of Texas and has caused almost 60 deaths the last time I checked is probably one of the results of the climate change that's caused by global warming. Intensified weather patterns have to do with changing climate. Choices I make contribute to global warming. Every unnecessary trip I make in my car, every recyclable, recyclable item I choose not to recycle because it's too hard, every food item I buy that is produced in a non-sustainable way contributes to global warming. Every hateful interaction I have with a neighbor contributes to the mindset that led to the Capitol riot. My sin leads to destruction, and not just in a spiritual way. Shortly after Pope Francis was elected in 2013, he gave an interview to an Italian Jesuit journal. He is, after all, the first Jesuit pope. 
Before his election, the future pope was well known in Latin America and among Jesuits worldwide, but very few people outside of those circles had ever heard of him. The editor of the journal wanted to give readers a chance to know and to understand their new pope a little better. And he asked, who is Jorge Mario Bergoglio? That's Pope Francis's birth name, the name he was known by before he became pope. The pope thought for a second, and then he answered, I am a sinner. This is the most accurate definition. It's not a figure of speech or a literary genre. I am a sinner. This is the fundamental truth that every Christian must understand. I am a sinner. You are a sinner. And that's not a statement of self-loathing, nor is it a statement of false humility. It is fact. I am a sinner. And as Charles Dickens said in A Christmas Carol, this must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm going to relate. Because the wonderful part of the story is that we are not simply sinners. We are, in fact, sinners loved, forgiven, and redeemed by God. You see, today's readings not only force us to consider the reality of our sin, but they also remind us of the reality of our baptism. The Catechism of the Episcopal Church defines baptism as the sacrament by which God adopts us as his children and makes us members of Christ's body, the Church, and inheritors of the kingdom of God. One of the great privileges of my life is to be the parent of adopted children. Well, one adopted child and two in the process. Every parent loves their children, but Tracy and I got to choose our kids. And one of the profound truths of the human condition is that we are God's children both by birth and by adoption. Every human person is created by God and in the image of God, and thus we are God's children naturally by birth. But in our baptism, God adopts us and purifies the image that we've corrupted through sin. This adoption and this purification come only through death. In our baptism, we die with Christ, and we are raised with Christ. If you ever look at pictures, get to visit a church, that, a pre-Constantinian church, a church that was built in the first, second, third centuries, or even some afterward, uh, look at the, or if you see pictures of it, look at the baptistries in these churches. First of all, they're always at the door, uh, because the first thing you see when you come into the church is the baptistry, because baptism is the entrance into the church. But baptistries, these ancient baptistries, are often sunken into the ground so that when a candidate would enter the waters, they were actually going down into the depths of the earth. You can't miss the symbolism that you are descending into the grave, and then after you're baptized, you come up out of the other side and are being raised again to new life. We're reminded today in our readings that our sinful selves die through baptism and rise to something newer and better. And that something newer and better is something that cannot be taken away. The reformer Martin Luther was somebody who, who suffered from crippling self-doubt throughout his life. And in his darkest moments, when he was not sure of God's love, not sure that he was on the right path, 
the thing he would remind himself constantly was, I am baptized. I am baptized. I am baptized. I am baptized. The grace of God given at, at baptism cannot be taken away. And even if we choose to move away from it, there is still something there that is marking us as gods. I am baptized. At Easter, we baptize new Christians, and those of us already baptized renew our baptismal commitments. In Lent, we prepare by confronting our sinfulness and meditating on our baptismal adoption. At the end of my time in seminary, I participated in an immersion at the Benedictine Abbey, Mount St. Scholastica in Atchison, Kansas, a Benedictine women's monastery. And one of the workshops we did was led by a 90-something-year-old nun whose name was Sister Lillian, um, who would drive, still drive herself, to churches around Kansas and northern Missouri and give workshops on storytelling, how storytelling affects faith and preaching. And her saying was, every story is true. Some actually happened. The story I'm about to tell, I don't know if it actually happened, but it is certainly true. In the 1930s, there was a Lutheran minister living in Germany who was friends with a local SS officer. And as time went on, their relationship became a little bit contentious because the SS officer was implementing Nazi policies and it was the role of the Lutheran minister often to preach against these policies that his friend was implementing. And the minister kind of got on the radar of the Nazi party and threats were made and finally his friend, the SS officer, came to him and said, don't you know that these people have the power to kill you? These people have power over your life and over your death. And the Lutheran minister looked at his friend and he said, I died at my baptism. They have no power over me. I died at my baptism. Remember in this day, in this season, that you are baptized, you are adopted as a child of God. We put to death our old sinful selves and we rise with Christ to something newer and greater. Amen. Amen.